and welcome to Hot Girls. This week we are going to be exploring the life and journey of a very unique artist, someone who taught me a lot about uh, what it really means to be creative and an individual. The accolades she's been awarded include being named one of the defining artists of the noughties by Rolling Stone and an MBE by the Queen. M.I.A. Rapper, singer, painter, videographer. M.I.A. is a creator and an activist who captured the attention of everyone from her early work with legendary DJ and producer Diplo to the Indian composer A.R. Rahman, who with she collaborated on the Slumdog Millionaire soundtrack, to Kanye West, who sampled her on Swagger Like Us. As well as being revered and celebrated, M.I.A. has also struggled with being out of alignment with the fame industry part of what makes her so great but also part of why some of you might be thinking hmm MIA is she still making music where's she at well you're about to find out through this sometimes I'll call her Maya uh, sometimes MIA but it's the same person Maya's just her name <laughs> rather than her stage name I really felt like she was a great next artist to spotlight because she comes at hip-hop in a totally different way and has had a much less conventional star style introduction to music so hopefully you know, if, for example, if you're making music and your career isn't going in the traditional traje- trajectory, blah, 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 that doesn't mean that you won't make it huge or you won't get to where you want to go. Like there's lots of different paths to the same end point. So I hope you enjoy learning about her as much as I did. Let's go. Ladies, gentlemen, up. You're listening to Hot Girls. With Lex of the Dead. We in the mix. It's fire. Keep it going. We on fire. From London for the world. Let's go in. On the 18th of July, 1975, a young lady named Matangi was born to Arul and Carla in London. She was their second child. They moved out to Sri Lanka when Matangi was six and here they had their third child. So Maya, so Matangi goes by Maya, was the middle child. Like me. The early part of Maya's life was spent in Sri Lanka before then moving initially to India for a year or so, and then back to the UK just before she turned 11. So by the age of 11, she'd already lived in three countries. She came back to the UK as a refugee with her mother and sister. While she was in Sri Lanka, her father became really heavily involved with a political protest group and had to go into hiding from the Sri Lankan army. So they lived in very basic um, conditions, but Maya obviously loved the country very deeply. The situation in Sri Lanka, the genocide and the civil wars that have been going on there have been a huge part of Maya's life and activism and the struggles that I said about fame in the start, you'll see that come through. I'm not going to talk about them in detail because I want to focus this on her music, but it's definitely something to be aware of and understanding her spirit and what motivates her. In the UK and into senior school age, Maya grew up on a predominantly white estate in Mitcham in South London. She lived in a very small flat with her mother, sister and brother. Uh, After she graduated high school, she went to Central St. Martins, which is one of the best creative colleges in the UK, to study fine art, film and video. She didn't get in through applying. She apparently got in um, through begging. Apparently she missed all the application process and her grades weren't good enough, but she called up the head of admissions there every day at the same time and begged him to take her. I wouldn't recommend this. It generally won't work. But in her case, it did. And she got accepted. Uh, I think he liked the fact that she was a provocateur. Unfortunately, her time at the college didn't inspire her to continue working in fine art specifically. I found a really old interview where she explains how she felt when she graduated. She said, By the time I left St. Martin's, I could not justify myself being an artist at all because I did not meet anyone there who was doing interesting art that was also getting through to everyday people. 
The students there were exploring apathy, dressing up in a pigeon outfit or running around conceptualising. My life did not allow it. My mum was getting evicted. My brother was going to jail. I'd get my first phone call from my dad in 12 years confirming he's still alive. So making ripples in the water to aesthetically represent beauty just didn't make sense to me. Lol. (laughs) I mean, fair. So what she did instead... Uh, Basically, a similar time when she graduated, she got a call from her relatives in Sri Lanka who told her that her cousin had been shot and left brain dead. She flew out to Sri Lanka and decided to pursue film, so started interviewing people who were living through what was essentially a political civil war out there. A lot of the footage that she captured ended up being used in a documentary about her life, which was released in 2018. film and art became the focus of her output for a time. She ended up meeting Justine Frischman, just in creative scenes, I think, who was the lead singer of a successful Britpop band called Elastica. Justine commissioned Maya to create the cover art for the band's 2000 album, The Menace, and also then video document their American tour. And that was really the entry point for Maya into the music industry. I didn't go to concerts a lot, but somebody gave me a free ticket then we got invited backstage and then I met Justine and we just hit it off. I want to pause on that relationship for a bit because I really think if Justine had not met Maya, MIA and her music probably wouldn't have existed or definitely not in the way it did. It makes me think about the importance of the people we bring into our lives and how they shape us. We think so often that nepotism is an issue because of opportunity, but for Maya, a Tamil refugee, it was much more about someone telling her that she could create, that she could write a song and it would be valid. She didn't enjoy touring because she felt very alienated. I mean, she was super young, I think about 20, 21, and um, was a very different person to the bands that she was around. She was very much there as Justine's friend, even if she did have a role in filming. That wasn't as serious or as important then as it can be considered now, obviously, in social age. So after tour... And for this early 20s period of her life, I think she was very much just trying to find herself and felt like the musicians she met on tour were the same, but she wasn't really like them. So they were just kind of a few lost people trying to make sense of the world. And then she she also then would go back to Sri Lanka to kind of try and find herself, but she also wasn't really like them because she'd grown up in London and she'd toured the States and stayed in hotels. So it was this kind of juxtaposition of worlds where she didn't quite make sense in any of them. When she moved back to London and was living with Justine, she wanted Elastica to make more music. And so she was saying to Justine, I'll write a song for you. I'll write a song for you. She had this restlessness and Justine made Maya stay put. And through having to stay put, she got bored and taught herself how to make music. And she was like the first one who who was like, just shut up and do something like yourself, you know. And up until that point, I had never sort of had someone say that to me. Um... So she just kind of, you know, I used to talk about stuff all the time and she'd be like, God, you just talk about things, you know? Like, you should make stuff about you. So she was introduced to the really basic equipment that she then used to create her early music. The first song she wrote, she wrote on a four track. Uh, A four track was basically a tape recorder that lets you record one sound on top of another. For example, you can record yourself strumming the guitar chords to a new song, rewind the tape, and then record yourself singing along what you just played without erasing the guitar. Very simple, very cheap, very homemade. Uh, She didn't get spotted at a talent show and given hours in the studio. She just kind of hacked it at home. 
And she definitely got hooked on this creative process of writing and to continue making and just playing around. She said, I'd go for days without brushing my teeth, just feeling like I'm learning so much, getting up at eight in the morning and on the four track all day. Lost all my friends, wouldn't comb my hair for days, just stick on my sweatshirt and have a go. (laughs) She's such a little weirdo and I really like that about her. She ended up making a six song demo tape, which was the equivalent of an EP, uh, I guess. And this included Galang, which I'll go on to talk about. um, But MIA basically went to Coachella with that song. So it was around 2001 that she actually started making music. She started playing around with that four track. Then in 2003, she signed a small deal with Showbiz Records using that demo tape. She actually just kind of went into their um, office, their studio, and said, I'm going to perform my stuff for you. Showbiz liked her music. It was it was fresh and it was a complete fusion of cultures. And they created 500 vinyls of her music and gave her more exposure. Then in 2004, she began uploading her music onto MySpace. So three years later... So it wasn't like it was instant, but Galang, the one I mentioned, kind of got on the radar of bigger audiences. And from there, a few months later, she was signed to XL Recordings, which was more of a formal record deal. Once signed, they then promoted Galang. At this point, music critics liked her and the underground internet scene liked her, who was starting to hear it through file sharing. The music video for Galang was made in November 2004, nearly a year after it had been growing traction in the underground. It isn't a fancy video. It's not like you're waiting for big budget. I just think Maya was more focused on getting her music out into the world and heard than necessarily fame or being a popular artist. She did say that she still really loves that video. So definitely watch it. In 2005, Arula, her debut album was released. She named the album after her father. It wasn't her father's birth name, but the one he adopted when he joined the Tamil independence movement. And remember that she didn't really speak to her father very often. It was released more or less simultaneously in the States and the UK. The album included all the singles she originally created, but packaged up properly as an album with some some additions and some structure. It had 11 tracks uh, with skits as well, which she just kind of mocks the world in. So the other tracks I'd recommend from that album, if you want to go have a listen to like where she started, I would say Pull Up The People, $10 and Fire Fire. Those are those are tracks I like. Arula just entered the Billboard Top 200, the American charts, reaching 190, and it got to 92 in the UK. So you wouldn't have heard it on Radio One Chart Show, but it did become the second most featured album in Music Critics' year-end top 10 list for 2005, and it was nominated for a Mercury Music Prize. So you can see how the industry was like, yeah, she's interesting, but she wasn't pop. The mainstream was definitely not ready for her. So I spoke about Justine. There's another person who was pretty heavily involved at this stage. And that was Diplo. Diplo was involved in the production. He produced Becky Dungan, which is a track on the album, and also supported on some of the other songs. Uh, Switch as well, who was a DJ who still works with um, MIA and Diplo, was also really involved. This was really early on in Diplo's career as well. And him and uh, Maya actually were together for about five years. So they were dating on and off after meeting on a night out in London. So they were a couple and they were creative collaborators. It's quite amazing, really, at these partnerships. Um, in the Missy Elliott episode, I spoke about how closely her and Timberland worked together and really developed one another. And I think in a similar way, 
MIA and Diplo really became known together. I know that people in the electronic music world know Diplo, he's super famous, but maybe other people don't so much. So he really has been for electronic music what Timbaland has been for hip hop. He's behind so much of what became popular, creating an incredibly broad range of music. And he's one third of Major Lazer, who you probably do know, and also the founder of Mad Decent, uh, a very well-known record label. Semi-ironically, given how famous he is now, Maya and Diplo actually broke up because Diplo hated the takeoff of MIA. He didn't want to see her signed to a major label. He just wanted her to be like his little creative partner. Um, it just, I think that we were, I was, it was, you know, it's impossible to date somebody in the, I feel like in the industry, it's really, I mean, it's just, it's not easy, especially when we, when you were like very small, like we were, and it explodes like how I did with Hipper Planes. It became really difficult. Um, but I feel like uh, there's lots of is- issues that we have personally between each other. But um, all, all that matters is that, you know, we had like what we did together was amazing. You know, yeah. that's all that really matters. You know, like now. The song that really changed Maya's life, they did write together and that was Paper Planes. It came from her second album uh, released in 2007 when Maya was 32. It was released by XR Recordings and it was named Carla after her mother. Her mother's life and struggles were a key theme of the album, and it was this album where the world really started paying attention to M.I.A. Despite obviously learning a lot about music from being around the Britpop crew, growing up she was hip-hop and dancehall inspired, so she was definitely drawn to a broad range of music. And also the rock side of things, she listened to The Clash and The Slits, and Paper Planes actually sampled uh, The Clash song Straight to Hell. The track had originally been recorded in 2006, Sorry for jumping around dates, but I just, Maya's career is not super linear, so I'm trying to make sense of it for you. Um, So it was originally recorded in 2006 and was released then as a single in 2008. In true MIA style to making stuff, she invited street kids she came across in Brixton to sing the song's chorus. She finished the song when she was living in Brooklyn, uh, where she'd moved to. She apparently originally recorded her vocals without paying much attention to her singing and finished the song in one take. Critics went mad for M.I.A. at this time. And I think more than any artist I can think of, the press have been both her best friend and her worst enemy. The industry publications like Enemy and Rolling Stone really loved her, but then news outlets couldn't understand her politics at all. In 2008, she contributed to the soundtrack of one of the Uh, biggest films of the year, which was Slumdog Millionaire. Paper Planes was used as well as a remix of Paper Planes, um, but she also co-wrote and features on Osea, which is a tune spelled O dot 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 S-A-Y-A. In 2008, MIA became the first person of Asian descent to be nominated for an Oscar and a Grammy Award in the same year. Boom. And I was like, you've got access to a microphone and a thousand people every night. Please use it to say something. So at this point, MIA is very well known. And in August 2009, uh, sort of a year and a half after the first release of Paper Planes, she starts working on her third studio album, now from her home studio in her Los Angeles house, darling, a long way from her London home and her Jaffna home. The reason I just played that clip is because this period of time is where Maya really became increasingly known as an activist. I think sceptics would say that she was using politics and controversy to increase her fame. Anyone who's seen her journey could comfortably agree that that's not true at all. And I think the next maybe five years of Maya's life and music become very much about this love-hate relationship with the world and the music industry and LA. 
her success and she also signed to a much bigger label, which meant that she had money for that home studio and the eyes of the mainstream. But she loved the underground. And at the same time, she launched her own record label, signing underground artists. And I think quite a few experiences she had. Well, and I'll highlight a couple of them. But she just realised how the press and the world of LA didn't really seem to care about what was going on with the violence in Sri Lanka. And remember, her extended family was still living there. So... You know, I said she was the first person of Asian descent to be nominated for a Grammy and Oscar. I think the world had not seen a female Tamil rapper before (laughs) at all. In fact, I know the world had not seen a female Tamil rapper before. And so for her to have the audience she did, I think she felt a huge sense of responsibility. third album, Maya, became MIA's highest charting album globally. But I wouldn't say it's necessarily her best music. I think it just coincided with when she was the hottest. And my favourite song off that album was Tequila and Nicki Minaj dropped a verse for a remix of the track. The album also included the song Born Free, which um, was really well known. It had a very controversial music video. In 2012, MIA and Nicki featured on a Madonna track called Gimme All Your Lovin'. Um, pretty underwhelming song but they they do feature on it which they then joined uh, Queen Madge on stage to perform at the Super Bowl halftime show this is kind of yeah so instead of basically singing the lyric shit in the song I can swear on this MIA seemingly kind of spontaneously decided to just flip off the camera and basically she was attacked the NFL filed a lawsuit suing her for millions in damages and demanding a public apology The controversy at the time went totally over my head, but it features a lot in her documentary as a real kind of low light, I guess, of the confusion of our morales as a society. Because no one wanted to hear about the fact that people were being killed in another country. And remember, that's what she was trying so hard to talk about and get people to talk about. They just wanted to know why she felt it was okay to show a middle finger at an NFL game. (gasps) Just fucking ridiculous. Her last formal studio album was released in 2012 and featured my two favourite songs of hers, Bring the Noise and Bad Girls. She signed to Rock Nation, which is Jay-Z's label, and Rihanna said, Welcome home, M.I.A. I want Rihanna to say that to me. The video for Bad Girls is why Maya is a queen in my eyes. It is everything. A fusion of a million cultures. It's powerful. It's powerful for women and men. It's glamorous, but in an accidentally kind of creative way. I absolutely love it. It was uh, actually released by Noisy, which is the hip hop arm of Vice. And that was when Vice magazine was like the home of alternative pop culture. In the period of time through her second and third album... I think Maya's life really intensified and that wasn't how she started in the industry. I did one of these episodes on Nicki Minaj and I'd also call out, call out Tory Lanes as an artist right now who's doing this. They have a relentlessness to them where they just don't want to get off the treadmill. They'll just make and make and make and release and release and release. And Maya was never like that. She was promoting the same single for a few years. She was 37 when she signed to Rock Nation. And I think after that third album, she just kind of slowed the treadmill and shifted focus onto other things which were interesting to her. She released a book and a documentary about her life with extensive footage starting from 30 years ago with Maya and her siblings dancing around a cramped London flat. She has continued making music and is now using Patreon to connect more with a smaller community of her fans releasing music on there. So Patreon is a site essentially where rather than paying for a specific thing, you or you, it kind of gives the ownership onto the actual creator because 
You're like donating for them to create, essentially. I guess she made enough money um, to kind of go slightly more under the radar, but also realised that even with all the eyes on you in the world, Maya still couldn't necessarily get people to care about what she cared about. So is now back to creating from a, from a more authentic creative space. She's making music, some great new music, but she's also making art. She's also become quite pally with Julian Assange, of all people, the founder of WikiLeaks, who is also friends with Pamela Anderson. What a dinner party. So given Maya's success, there are undoubtedly lessons to learn from the characteristics she embodies and the way that she's pursued the world. So these are my top lessons from MIA. Number one, be yourself. Everyone says it, but it's so true. And I'll just play a little clip. But after I decided that I was an individual, then I think I got signed like six months after. Number two, taking meaning from experience. One of the moments that really stuck with me in her documentary was when Maya's sister is struggling to accept the way uh, their father has chosen to fight in Sri Lanka. And he's left them to cope. And the way she responds to this says a lot about her character. And she says, um, I'm glad. I'm glad he's he's done this because he's made us so strong for what he's put us through. I guess that's just an example of taking what's out of your control and seeing the good in it. Number three, her approach to creativity. And if you could only take away one um, thing from this from this 20 minutes it would be this she doesn't she's not classically trained she some people probably think her music sounds like utter shite like she just doesn't care she just makes stuff and she's exactly the same way and I think you know we spoke about how Justine kind of validated her in that space or, or made her feel like it was okay but also before that she'd been doing that with her art with painting so I think there's just a freedom to her in the way she creates and I wish more people felt like that was okay Number four, stand for something. While there's a lot of complexity in most arguments when it comes to politics and humanity, Maya doesn't let that stop her from expressing the truth as she's experienced it. So make your purpose bigger than you. Number five, go beyond the music. Missy Elliott, she's really heavily involved in the dance community. Her videos are really important to her. In the same way, I would say MIA, her style, her covers that she creates, the videos, the worlds that she builds, just be creative in all the ways that appeal to you because some people consume your music just for your music, but a lot of people nowadays consume your music in loads of different channels. So expand yourself into different areas. Thanks, MIA, Maya Matangi, you are a rock star. And thanks, listeners. Next week is a guest episode. And then the week after, we'll be talking the first lady of hip hop, Lil' Kim. Stay safe, stay healthy. Laters. What up, let's. Hot girls, you know the vibe. All the hot girls on the line. All the hot girls, you know the vibe. All my hot girls.